0: Today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind he became frightened and beginning to sink he cried out Lord save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him saying to him you have little faith why did you doubt? When they got into the boat the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him saying truly you are the son of God. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. I want you to know this morning that my high school mascot was the griffin. The griffin. If you don't know what a griffin is, don't worry. It's a mythological creature that is half eagle and half lion. Nerdiest high school mascot ever. That's what we had. Luckily, we did not have a fight song. I had a really weird mascot in high school because I went to a magnet school that focused on science and technology, what we would call STEM today, but this was way back in the 1990s and no one had invented that acronym yet. So we just called it science and technology. It was a great school, great experience, go Griffins. But sometimes I look back and I think, why in the world did I slog through all of those science and math classes so that I could grow up and become your preacher? Not one time in all these years of offering pastoral care have I needed to reference the periodic table. (laughs) Never once in planning worship has it come in helpful to have an understanding of quantum mechanics, okay? You just don't expect me to know a lot about science, which is good because most of my current scientific knowledge comes from listening to podcasts. (laughs) You don't expect me to know a whole lot about science. You expect me to know a lot about the Bible, I think, and about theology and about faith. Those are the kind of questions you ask me anyway. You don't ask me questions of chemistry or geology or astrophysics. You don't come to me for scientific knowledge. You don't come here to church, probably, for scientific knowledge. And if that's true, that we don't really come here to church for scientific knowledge, then my question today is what do we do with our scientific knowledge when we enter these doors? when we come here to talk about faith? What do we do? Do we toss science out? Do we set it aside, kind of leave it in the parking lot and then go and pick it back up when we leave? Or do we bring our scientific knowledge in here with us? Can science sit beside us as we wrestle with questions of faith? There are a lot of people in the world who would tell you no. Both people of faith and people of science would say that. They would say to us, there is no possible harmony between the two. Either science or faith. You choose. We're in week three here of our series, I Have My Doubts. Just a reminder, if you missed either of the first two weeks, you can go to our YouTube channel or our Facebook page and find the worship videos there. We also have a podcast, by the by. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's just the sermon, so you can listen. What If you missed out on worship, you can listen later while you wash the dishes or walk the dog, whatever. Anyway, this week here, week three, we've already explored together The doubts that come from the problem of suffering and the stories of miracles, how those can be obstacles in faith and how we can respond together in faith. Today, I want to explore with you for a few minutes, faith and science. You can imagine someone saying, maybe you've even heard someone say, maybe you've even said yourself, I don't know, I can't believe that religious stuff. I believe in science and science and faith don't mix. Now, as I was researching this sermon, I discovered what I consider to be a slightly amazing fact, and that is in the United States, according to polling, only 48% of scientists, people who do science for a living, just under half of scientists claim a religious affiliation. Half of scientists say they are people of faith. In the non-science population, people who don't do science for a living, like 80% of people claim a religious affiliation. That's a big difference. That's a lot of scientists saying, science and faith don't mix. And in a a way, I can't say that I really blame scientists for being wary of religion, because when it comes to the conflict between science and faith, we have to admit, guys, we started it. Remember that guy named Galileo? Italian scientist, mathematician, astronomer, early in the 1600s, he started talking about the earth revolving around the sun. And the Catholic Church did not like it. They felt that the scriptures clearly stated the earth was the center of the universe. Now, it does not say that specifically anywhere in the Bible. That was their interpretation. But they were holding fast to it. And so to them, Galileo was challenging the Bible to say that the earth revolves around the sun. I'd say today, He was simply challenging their reading of the Bible, not what the Bible actually says. But probably they would have been unconvinced by my nuance (laughs) of that argument. So 1615, the Roman Inquisition investigates the matter and decides that Galileo's theory, heliocentrism, was wrong. They said the idea that the sun is actually the center of things, that that's foolishness, it's absurd, and it is heretical. Galileo, you might remember, he didn't give up. He doubled down. He wrote a book defending his views. He was tried by the Inquisition, deemed a heretic, forced to recant, spent the rest of his life under house arrest. So we started the fight. Even though today you'd be hard-pressed to find a person, even the most devout person, who would try to argue that the sun revolves around the earth. I don't know anybody that believes that anymore. So almost all the church has gotten on board with Galileo's discovery But even that change of heart has not stopped leaders of the church or different denominations from getting mad about what science has discovered about the world because what science discovered maybe challenged their long-held worldview or their reading of the Bible. After Galileo, it has just happened again and again and again. So because we in the church have often been dismissive of science, it's made it a lot easier for people of science to dismiss us. A church being closed off to new discoveries of the world, that's one problem. It's not the only problem. There are also claims of faith, claims that we make that scientists, scientists who like hard data, scientists who like replicable experiments, they find it hard to believe. Like resurrection, that can be an obstacle. We only have one example of that phenomenon, right? Jesus is unique. He is a case study of one. Another classic example of something very hard for science-minded people to believe would be the story that we have for today that Stephanie just read for us, Jesus walking on the water. Now, because this is a kind of miracle, it has some overlap with what we talked about last week, but it, it's also a different kind of story. It's not a healing It's not a medical miracle. Jesus doesn't step in to save someone or change someone's life. Instead, at first glance, it seems like Jesus is out there walking on the water, well, just because he can. The story, it occurs immediately after one of those miraculous feedings in the gospel stories. Jesus, or Matthew actually is telling us in this whole section, it's like a a little miracle section in the gospel. And so Matthew's telling us all kinds of wonders that Jesus did trying to show us who Jesus is. And in the story, Jesus had just found out that his friend, John the Baptist, had been killed by King Herod, had been beheaded. So Jesus is sad. And he wants to do what many of us do when we hear bad news. He wants to go away by himself for a little while. He wants to think. He wants to pray. So Jesus and the disciples, they get into a boat and they travel over to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, to find a little reflection spot. But when they get there, they find there's actually a big crowd waiting for them. And so Jesus teaches, he heals, and he feeds them. And the crowd goes home happy. And then Jesus tells the disciples to get back in the boat, and he goes up to the hills to have that moment of reflection and prayer. He's finally getting the time alone he wanted to grieve for his beloved friend, his cousin, John. It was kind of windy that night. And I'm not really sure if the disciples meant to leave Jesus, uh, but over the course of hours, they seem to be not paying attention, and the wind and the waves pushed them out into the lake far from shore. So four o'clock in the morning comes, and Jesus comes down from the mountain and sees that his people are far away. They're out in this boat in the middle of the lake. He is on the beach alone. Now what does he do for this predicament? He doesn't call out to them. He doesn't hire another boat to take him out there. He doesn't swim out there. He doesn't wait until morning, assuming that they might come back to him. No, he just simply sets out across the water, acting like it were dry land, walking to them in the middle of the lake. So it could look like Jesus is just kind of taking a colossal shortcut here, right? He needs to get to the boat. He's a son of God. He can skim across the water, and so he takes advantage. I think it's really interesting in this story that Jesus never explains the feat, It's not a teaching moment for him. He doesn't tell the disciples why he did it or say this is a sign of the kingdom or it's a mark of discipleship. He in no way says, take up your cross and follow me. Peter's the one that asks to join him on the lake and it doesn't go well, as Pastor Rebecca told us. Peter's not out there for a minute before he starts to sink and he has to be rescued by Jesus. Now, most, any scientist will tell you Plainly, humans cannot walk on water. We are so big that the force of gravity quickly overcomes the surface tension of the water, making us sink. Remember, surface tension is that force created when molecules cling together, and it is what allows insects and other tiny animals to walk across ponds and other such things without sinking. But human beings were too big. And we could actually overcome this problem of gravity if we could walk really fast across the lake, like 67 miles an hour. But otherwise, we've got no hope of walking on water, none. Did Jesus physically walk on water? Did that happen? To me, the important question is not how did he do that, like scientifically, how did it happen? But rather, to me, the important question is, what is this story trying to tell us about who Jesus is? And to answer that question, we have to think for a minute about the relationship in the Bible between God and water. Over and over again in the scripture, God's power is seen through calming the sea. In fact, this is the very first thing God does in the Bible. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Holy Spirit. How in the first story of creation in Genesis, chapter 1, it says, In the beginning the earth was a formless void, darkness covered the face of the deep. The deep what? The deep water. So it's this picture of, of a big sea that's chaotic and dangerous and without life. And God's holy wind sweeps across the water and begins to take the world to take shape. God speaks and God brings order and God brings life and God brings form to this chaotic sea. So God takes what was dangerous and lifeless and makes it safe for life. God takes chaos and brings order. That's how God creates. If you read through the Psalms or the book of Job or the prophets, you will find again and again this mighty act of God claiming and calming the sea God taking chaos and making order, that it is celebrated again and again and again. So the Bible thinks this is one of the ways that God shows God is God, by calming the waters, by trampling the waves, by taming the sea. This is why it's important for Jesus to walk out across the water. He is God, and the disciples are going to understand that, because they see him have mastery over the waves, and they have read and reread those passages from the Old Testament. So they see someone with power over the troubled waters, they say, oh, this person must be God. Remember, it was not a quiet evening on the lake, it was stormy. Jesus walks out in the midst of those stormy waters, trampling down the waves, and he does it at night. At night. So he's showing he's the master of darkness and chaos. He is indeed the Son of God. That's Matthew's point. Did Jesus actually walk on the water? Matthew did not expect us to ever ask that question. Because guess what? Matthew didn't know anything about gravity. He had no idea what it meant to violate the laws of nature. He didn't even know what those were in terms of physics. He didn't think that way. He thought about the fact that God tames the sea, and so it's important for us to see Jesus taming the waters so we know Jesus is the Son of God. So just like last week, this is not a story about how the world works. This is a story about who Jesus is. But Pastor Amy, did it happen? Was it real? You know, we can't prove that one way or another. We simply can't. We've never seen another human being walk on water. Scientifically, it's not possible. Exactly. Exactly. The point of the story is that Jesus is unlike any other human that has ever been, and he's not bound by the laws of nature, and that's all we can say. If Matthew's story today does not satisfy the scientific parts of your brain, I'm not surprised because Matthew was not a scientist, and he was not trying to teach us a scientific lesson. It's just one more moment when we have to say the Bible is not going to answer all our scientific questions. To try to get it to do that would be to ask it to do something it's not created to do. It's when we try to get science and faith to do the same thing that we run into this irreconcilable conflict. Science and faith are not meant to do the same thing. They do different things. They answer different questions. We put them in conflict when we try to get them to answer the same questions. Science helps us understand and navigate the material world, the things we can touch and explore and see. Faith. Faith wants to help us live as moral human beings, as holy human beings, and also helps us look beyond the material world into the spiritual. So for instance, for instance, science will tell us, at least now it will tell us, hasn't always been the case that you have to remember, science has gotten a whole lot of things wrong over the last many hundred years. It's done a lot of damage. It's hurt a lot of people. Like, uh, think about that pseudoscience eugenics, just for one example recently. But today, biological science will tell us that genetically, all humans are pretty much the same. Everybody here, genetically, is pretty much the same. What's different between us genetically is a fraction a fraction of our entire genome, right? Human DNA is pretty much human DNA. So what that means is no matter who our neighbor is, no matter what part of the world they come from, no matter what they look like, how they talk, what they eat, what color their skin is, they are actually genetically almost completely the same as we are. So we and all of our neighbors, we are remarkably alike. Science tells us that but it does not tell us what to do with that information. We have to decide what to do with that information, and faith tells us we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. So science tells us the facts. Faith gives us a moral way to respond to those facts. Or consider illness. Thank goodness for the advances of medical science. It tells us what illness is and how to treat it. But science doesn't tell us how to survive illness with heart and soul intact. That's why when your doctor comes to your hospital room, you have one kind of conversation. And when your pastor comes to your hospital room, you have a different kind of conversation, right? The one with your doctor is gonna include a a stethoscope. It doesn't matter what kind of doctor they are, they're gonna listen to your heart and listen to you breathe, right? When I was in the hospital, this would happen like 15 times a day. Someone would come and listen to my heart. But the conversation that you have with me in that hospital room, that conversation is not going to include a stethoscope. More likely, it is going to make you cry. So that's what happens when your pastor comes. Now, you need both kinds of conversations to move toward healing. Or imagine you're in the middle of a terrible thunderstorm. Lightning, hail, huge wind, maybe even tornadoes. A science can tell you why that storm is raging, how the weather was formed, probably even give you a track on your phone on the radar to tell you where the storm is going. But what is going to help you? What is going to answer you when you pray in the middle of your fear? Not science, faith. Faith is what delivers to us in that moment of the terrible storm, it's what delivers us to us the promise that we're not alone, that one way or another we're gonna survive the storm. There is so much that science knows and so much it doesn't. I mean, what came before the Big Bang? What what caused life to first form in that primordial soup? What happens after we die? there is plenty of room for both science and faith to pursue their questions in the world. And science and faith can benefit from being in conversation with one another to explore areas where there might be overlap, but they don't have to compete with each other, they just don't. And they don't have to cancel each other out, not at all. So this week as a spiritual exercise, I wanna encourage you to learn something new scientifically. You can listen to a podcast, Radio Lab is my favorite sciency podcast, or you could just Google, right? There is a wealth of scientific information on the internet to be found and explored. Please be careful about your sources. <laughs> There's also a lot of junk and a lot of false stuff on the internet. Or you could read some article in the science section of your favorite newspaper. Learn about some new advancement in medicine or astronomy or animal biology, or whatever is most interesting to you. Take a moment to learn something new about our world, how it works, how we're learning to, what we're learning to do with it. And then after you do that, take a moment to pray, to thank God for the ability we have to think and reason and discover, and ask God to bless the scientists and guide them in their work, and ask God for the wisdom to lean on both science and faith letting each take their turn in this world that is so beautiful and so complex there's room enough for both. Thanks be to God.